thoroughly recommended at the beginning of it, he um, describes a painting, uh, this painting by Holman Hunt called The Shadow of the Cross. Uh, It depicts Jesus in a carpenter's workshop, uh, taking a a break from his work and stretching. And as he stretches, his shadow is cast uh, on the wall behind him, forming a cross. Uh, The tool rack, the horizontal bar, the tools reminding of the hammer and the nails. Uh, On the ground is is Mary. Uh, We can't see her face, but she's stunned as she sees this image. Uh, At her feet are the gifts of the wise men. Uh, This is not historically accurate. Uh, That wasn't what Hunt was trying to do. He wasn't trying to depict history. Uh, What he said was, he said he was determined to do battle with the facts of the day, its superficial treatment of trite themes. Uh, And so he spent three years in Israel, and he painted this from the roof of his house in Jerusalem. Uh, What is he telling us in this painting? What does he want to convey? What he wants to show so clearly is that it is the cross, the cross of Christ that looms large over everything we understand about Jesus. Or at least it should do, shouldn't it? Uh, well, should it? No, is he right? Is he right? Because there's so much else we could talk about about Jesus, isn't there? And we do, his, his wise teaching, his, his great miracles, his compassion, Uh, Why do we single out the cross? Why do we make the cross the dominating thing? Because Christian church has done that, haven't we? Uh, The cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. People, uh, we have it on churches, we have it on necklaces. Uh, It is everywhere. Uh, Is it right that the cross is central? And and I guess we could ask that a bit more personally, couldn't we? Now what about for us? What place do we give to the cross of Christ? Now, when you consider the cross, what what comes out? What what goes on in your heart? Uh, Isaac Watts wrote to him about surveying the wondrous cross. And in it, he says, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. He says, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. He says in that hymn, there is something about the cross, something about the cross that kind of undoes him and renews him in the same moment. It breaks him and it heals him and it gives his heart, it gives his heart fuel for endless adoration, seized by a great affection when he considers the cross. Does it for us? Does it? Now, even if we might not know it with that intensity, Do we agree with him that that is the appropriate response to the cross? Well, come with me to Galatians chapter 3, the opening 14 verses to this chapter. This is a letter that burns with emotion. You might remember the background. Uh, The Apostle Paul had visited these four cities in a region called Galatia, told them the good news about Jesus. Many believed new churches were started. When Paul went away, they were quickly blown off course. So he writes this letter. In the first two chapters, we've seen how Paul is, is, is kind of setting the record straight. You see, there, there are uh, people who have come in after Paul and they're saying, this guy, Paul, his message is not quite the whole message. Uh, Paul's message is not a genuine message. Paul's message is not aligned with what the other churches are saying. So, so Paul's been putting the record straight. He says, no, that's not the case. He says, I got the message directly from the risen Lord Jesus. It is as authentic as that. 
And he says, although I didn't immediately go to consult with the other churches, when I finally did, we agreed that our message is the same message. We're on the same page. Uh, Last time we saw him uh, kind of recount an incident that happened with Peter. Uh, Peter, who was acting in a way not aligned with the gospel. And Paul confronted him. And in that confrontation, both Peter and Paul agree that they know that they both know that they cannot be put in a right relationship with God on the basis of the good things they do. That they can, though, be put in a right relationship with God when they trust Christ. And Paul's been, been putting the record straight, talking about these things that have happened. Then we get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, he turns back to his audience, back to the Galatians. His, his emotions are pretty high. Now, imagine that you were... Um, sitting beside a friend who is very poorly. You're there in hospital. And, and in front of your poorly friend are two um, bottles. Um, one of the bottles is a medicine. A medicine which has been proven to instantly cure your friend's condition. Uh, the other bottle is uh, uh, something left by the cleaner. Um, a, a toxic bleach of some sort. And, and you see your friend pick up a spoon and pour out a dose of the bleach. It's insane, isn't it? Why would anybody do that? The medicine is right there in front of you. Why ignore what would heal and take what would kill? That's, that's the emotion of Paul as he, as he begins this chapter. You see how he begins verse 1? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or well, one paraphrase puts it, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. What is it that makes their behavior so bizarre? Well, what it is, Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. But when Paul was there, he had spoken to them about the cross of Christ. He had explained to them about the cross of Christ. But now he says, it's as though that didn't even happen. It's as though you've been put under a spell and you're acting in a way totally inconsistent with Christ crucified. And Paul's going to unpack that inconsistency. The inconsistency between what the Galatians are doing and the cross of Jesus Christ. To understand these verses, we're going to ask um, three questions. Uh, They're not equally weighted, but we're going to ask this. First of all, how great is the good news of Jesus Christ? Secondly, how are the Galatians wrong? And thirdly, how might we avoid this bewitching folly? How great is the good news of Jesus Christ? And the good news of Jesus Christ is like an ocean, isn't it? An ocean that's, that a, a toddler can, can paddle in, but an ocean that's deep enough to swallow a mountain. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, what we have been brought into is something so huge that it stretches right from the beginning of time through to the end of time and beyond into eternity. And we have to constantly resist the urge to deflate the gospel. And one of the ways we can do that is we treat the gospel like a bolt-on. You know, with my, um, my mobile phone contract, I've got some basic conditions, but I can bolt on extra things, some extra data, some extra minutes, some little extras. Now, we can treat the gospel like that. We can, we can have this attitude where we think we've got the basic conditions of life. 
No, whatever we think that might be. We've got maybe places to live. Maybe we've got some employment. Maybe we've got some family and friends. Maybe some hobbies and some interests. And we've got these basic conditions. And then we bolt on Christianity to give a bit of kind of spiritual flavor to things. Now, if we were to ask ourselves, what difference does Christ crucified make to the ordinary things? Now, what difference does Christ crucified make to to the way you eat breakfast, or or the way you wash the dishes, or or, or the way you do your work, or the way you pay your taxes, or or the way you drive your car, or, or, or the way you watch the rugby, being a Six Nations weekend. And if we answer the question that to the ordinary things it doesn't make much difference, we could be in danger of treating the gospel like a little bolt on. And we've shrunk it down and when it gets shrunk down it becomes unrecognisable and it's no longer a gospel. In these verses before us, Paul goes really big, really big. And we're going to try and track his argument. Verses 2 to 5, his point in these verses, he says to them, You receive the Spirit by faith, not works of the law. He doesn't put it so directly. He asks them questions, lots of rhetorical questions. He wants to dig into their mindset. He wants to say to them, what on earth are you thinking? He says, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? It's rhetorical. The answer is by believing what you heard. Verse three he says, you started with the spirit. Are you going to finish as though you, the spirit was never given? Verse four, have you experienced so much in vain? An experience has in suffered. Have you suffered so much? You know, to follow Christ is costly. When Paul went to these cities, he was, he was thrown out, he was threatened, he was stoned. That's the, the, the atmosphere in which these new Christians live. The message of Christ was met with hostility. It was costly for them to follow Christ. They suffered, Paul said. Suffered because they were Christians. And Paul says, was, was all of that that happened to you? Was it all for nothing? He's implying that that they're on this trajectory which will lead to them not being Christians. And we have to listen to this. We we saw earlier in the letter how Paul spoke about false believers. People who claim to be Christians but they're not. And now he's saying these Galatians, they could be just like that. It's important to understand the danger. Verse 5, does God give his spirit and work miracles among you, work powerful transformations among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? His point is the same again and again and again. His point is you receive the spirit by faith, not works of the law. But it leaves us with a couple of questions. Here they are. First one, by faith works of the law. He's making a difference. What is the difference? What does by faith have that works of the law doesn't have? Now, why does it matter to to get the difference between these things? In verses 6 to 9, he's going to speak about what it means to go by faith. In verses 10 to 12, he's going to speak about what it means to go by works of the law. Now, that's the first question. The second question, what does it mean to receive the Spirit? He's been saying, you receive the Spirit by faith. What does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, let's bring those questions as we go through the passage. I seem to have lost a slide here. That's really disappointing, isn't it? Right. Imagine that it just says verses 6 to 9. There we go. Verse 6 to 9. That's where we are. We haven't jumped ahead. Verse 6 to 9. By faith, anyone can be justified and joined to the blessings of Abraham. That's what it's saying. 
He, verse 6, he comes in, so also Abraham. They're receiving the Spirit by faith, he's saying. That is what happened to Abraham. Now, Paul jumps back 2,000 years to the life of Abraham. Uh, last term, we looked at the life of Abraham. We began. We're going to finish it next term. And this is really important for Galatia. See, in, in Galatia, the troublemakers are saying, you non-Jewish believers are not really part of the people of God. You're not in the family of Abraham. You are outsiders and you will remain outsiders unless you start to do certain things to make you Jewish. Paul says, okay, if that's what you're saying, let's go there. Let's, uh, let's pick up that challenge. Let's look at Abraham, verse 6. Abraham was justified by faith. It's picking up from Genesis 15 and verse 6, a, a, a time when, when Abraham had been promised that he would have these descendants, he would have this family. But he's an old man and his wife hasn't had any children. And, and at, at this point, it's been going on for a while, and Abraham breaks down and he cries out to God and he says, what is the point, God? You've promised so much and you've delivered so little. There is nothing to show. And God says, I will do what I've said. And Abraham trusted him. He took God at his word. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief, his, his faith was counted as righteousness. This is such an important verse in the Bible. Um, you see, Abraham's faith is not righteousness. They're not the same thing. Uh, but he says, God saw Abraham's faith and counted the faith as something that it is not. And my children uh, love a show called The Floor is Lava. If you know it, you should look it up. It's good fun. Um, the contestants have to get across a room, and there's some various bits of furniture, but they can't touch the floor because the floor is lava. It's not actually lava. It's kind of colored water. But for the sake of the show, we say, we see the water, and we're going to count it as lava. It's not lava, but we're going we're to consider it as lava. Abraham's faith is like that. Abraham's faith is not righteousness, but God says, I'm going to see your faith and I'm going to count it as righteousness. So Abraham is justified. In the sight of God, he's treated as blameless, not because he was, but because he had faith. And Paul says in verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Anyone who has faith, regardless of race or background, God will justify and declare a person righteous by faith, not by how good they are. Paul says that was right there in the account of Abraham. Now God announced this good news. He quotes now from Genesis 12. All nations will be blessed through you, said God to Abraham. Now Abraham shows what it is to be justified by faith. He trusted God. God declared him as righteous. And everyone who does the same will be treated in the same way, will be included in the blessings of Abraham. How then does that help with our questions? What does by faith have that works of the law lacks? We've started to answer that. By faith brings a verdict from God, a judgment from God, a decision from God to declare somebody to be righteous. That's what by faith does. We'll come to by works of the law in a minute. And the second question, what does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, we've seen now, receiving the Spirit is connected to being righteous by faith. And it's about being included in the blessings of Abraham. Verses 10 to 12. By works of the law, 
no one is justified before God. Verse 10, Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law for what? Well, the issue is about how to be righteous in the sight of God. If somebody tries to earn that verdict of righteousness based on the good things they do, they will find themselves under a curse. Why? Why will they be under a curse? Well, Paul quotes Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, God's demands are for perfect, continual obedience to everything he said. That's the standard. And nobody can meet the standard. Now, to try to be declared righteous before God based on our obedience will find us only under a condemning curse of God. The clear conclusion, Paul says, verse 11, be clear on this. No one who relies on the law is justified before God. And Paul supports that with a a verse from the Old Testament Testament prophet Habakkuk, that faith is the key thing. It's it's, it's not the, the doing, but it's the believing that matters. In verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. See, this is what Paul is is fighting against. His opponents treated the, the commandments of God in the Old Testament as bare commands. They took away mercy. They took away the foundation of grace. And they said, you will be saved on the basis of your obedience to what God says. So your acceptance before God will be down to what you do. The good things you do, that will earn your welcome. How does that help with our questions? What does by faith have that works of the law lacks? Well, the problem with the works of the law is us. We're the problem. God has a standard of perfect obedience. And everything else, everything less, is worthy of condemnation. That is the curse which rests on all humanity. The book of the law, when it came through Moses, it gave a clarification to to the law of God in creation, the law of God written on every human heart, that we must love God our maker, we must love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what the law is. It's a standard for us to reach, but if we see it as a standard, we will fall at the first hurdle. Because nobody does it perfectly, nobody does it continually. So everybody bears the curse. The problem with trying to be right with God on the basis of our good deeds, the problem with that is that our good is just never good enough. That's what by works of the law lacks. The problem is here. What does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, it's related to being justified by faith and connected and included to the blessings of Abraham. Now, as Paul unpacks this, he's he's giving a kind of... the grand scope of redemption story. And I think maybe it's worth and helpful just to see a quick overview of this. Right in the beginning, at creation, God made a place of blessing. The opening couple of chapters describe this world of blessing. Under God's rule and under God's reign flowed blessing. And people enjoyed to be with God and enjoyed his blessing. It was all blessing. But after creation, as the youth told me on Friday night, comes decreation. There's a fall. People sinned. They didn't trust God's word. And they were removed from the place of blessing. And they were put under a curse. You read about it in Genesis 3. A curse of being apart from God. A curse of being in a broken world. The curse of heading towards an eternity under God's anger. And you read on in Genesis. In Genesis 4 to 11, you see this downward spiral. 
the curse running, wreaking havoc. The world is ruined. People tear each other apart. God is forgotten. Everywhere is cursed. And then, in Genesis 12, like this breath of fresh spring air, comes Abraham. Now God calls Abraham and God says to Abraham, I will bless you. God, God, God is saying to Abraham, and it comes completely out of the blue, he's saying, what was lost at the fall is now promised to be restored. The, the blessing of Abraham is to have a home, is to have human dignity restored and put right. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And he says, and I will curse those who curse you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. There are two different words for curse used here. The, the, the first one means to label somebody else as cursed. It, the first one means to look at somebody's life and to say, that is awful. I would never want any part of that. I want to be rid of that. That is terrible. The second word means to actually be removed from the blessings of God. So when God says, whoever curses you, I will curse. He's saying, whoever looks at Abraham, who looks at this man of faith in a right relationship with God, who's blessed by the Lord, whoever looks at that and says, nah, I don't want any of that. I don't want God in my life like for him. I don't want God's blessings I can manage by myself. Now the Lord says, well, you'll get what you want. If you don't want life under the protection and care of the creator, then that's what you will have. I will remove you from that life, says the Lord. But... The Lord says, I will bless those who bless you. Those who look at the life of Abraham and say, oh, to be in right relationship with God. To be under the care and the protection of the Lord, that is best. And God says, that person I will secure in my blessing. Blessing and curses are now promised. After Abraham, through Moses came the law. And when the law was given, it came again with those promises of blessing and those warnings of curses. See, when God's word was met with faith, blessings would flow. When God's word was met with unbelief, the people would remain under the curse of condemnation. And then after the law, the prophets came. And in the prophets, we begin to see a connection between the promise of blessing and the coming of the Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 44, God promises a renewal of creation. He promises that that the paradise lost would be restored. And he says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. My spirit is my blessing. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's. The blessings of Abraham. A belonging to a renewed creation without the agony of curse and, and sin and death. That will come when God pours out his spirit. We could go on through the prophets. There's lots of other places we could stop. In Ezekiel 36, one of the most grace-filled chapters of the Bible. God, does, God, God, God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but this is my promise. He says, I will gather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will be my people and I will be your God. You see, obedience to God's commands is never abandoned. 
It's important that we do what God says, but it's not the basis for our acceptance. Obeying God is is not the, the foundation, it's the fruit of our relationship with God. A relationship he gives by the Spirit. What does it mean to receive the Spirit? It means to belong to the coming age. It means to be part of a new creation. It means to share in those blessings of Abraham that were then promised through the prophets. It means to be cleansed and to be renewed and to be forgiven and to be restored and to belong to God, to be his people, for him to be our God, to be in closest relationship. That's what it means to receive the Spirit. But with all of that story behind us, we have to ask, how can we who are under the curse be brought to those blessings? Verses 13 to 14, it is only by faith in Christ crucified. That's where Paul goes to in this passage. Faith faith isn't anything. Faith hasn't got intrinsic value. But but what faith does, it takes hold of something. Faith, the, the, the something faith takes hold of is all the difference. And the something that faith reaches for is the first word in verse 13. The first word in verse 13 is Christ. Christ. What has Christ done? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul is so clear here. It's clear that all people, the Jews and the Gentiles, those who have the law of Moses, those without the law of Moses, everybody is under this curse, belonging to a sinful humanity. And, and our rebellion against the living God puts us Under the curse of condemnation, what each of us deserve from God is only his hell. But that's not what we have. Because Christ has redeemed us. Christ has paid the price. How does he do it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Christ put himself under the curse of God. So so when Christ died on the cross, all of my sin, all of that condemnation that I deserve, it was diverted from me and it was directed onto him. And he carried my curse. He made my curse his own. And he suffered it. And he suffered it in full. He suffered it until divine justice said, it is done. Every part of my debt to divine holiness down to the last penny. Every part, wiped away, I am now free, cleansed and forgiven. The faith we have counts because it reaches for Christ and he counts for everything. Faith is trusting Christ. Faith binds us up with Christ so that our curse can be his and that we, by that great exchange, can have his righteousness and before the sight of God be declared forever innocent. You see what flows out of this? What comes out of verse 13? What follows verse 13 is verse 14, which says, In order that, Christ has done all of this, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Or better, in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. He's the location of all of God's redemptive purposes. All of the renewal of everything from beginning to end is contained in Christ. Every blessing is found in him and we get them by being in him by faith. Verse 14, by faith, by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
Paul is stretching out to show how great is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's as huge as all creation. It's as huge as all of history. That the hope of all things, renewed in the paradise of perfection, when we will be with God in imperishable bliss forever and ever, and our place in that, our inclusion in that, does not, and it cannot, and it will not depend on anything that we have done. Now we by ourselves, we are only bound by a curse under our sin. We by ourselves, we just carry a debt that we cannot pay. But Christ, Christ came and he became the curse for us, dying under the curse. So the blessings of Abraham and the gift of the Spirit, they might be ours by faith in Christ. And so our place, our place in all of this, our inclusion, forgiven and redeemed with God in the new creation, is utterly, utterly secured by Jesus Christ, by our faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is not a bolt-on. It's everything. It is everything. And that's our first question. How great is the good news of Jesus Christ? Our second question. How are the Galatians wrong? They were wrong, weren't they? Paul is clear, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's baffled by it. Christ has been presented to them as crucified, clearly presented to them, and they got it, and they trusted it, and they loved it, and they rejoiced in it, and they received the Spirit. All the merits of Christ were counted to them. They were included in the blessings of Abraham. And yet now, Paul says, now you're trying to earn God's favour. You're trying to do it on the, obe- on the basis of your obedience. And obedience, it's important, but it's, it's not the foundation, it's the fruit. What the Gentiles are not saying, the Gentiles are not saying, I'm accepted, and so I seek to obey. The Gentiles are started to say, I'm seeking to obey, so I can be accepted. But they're acting as though Christ crucified isn't big enough for them. That they're acting as though faith in Christ isn't going to get them all the way. And Paul says, that is bonkers. It's crazy. You can't be good enough. You just can't. But God offers Christ. He offers you the bloodied and the crucified Christ. His death pays for your sin. In him you have access to all the blessings. It's all yours by faith, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's bonkers, Paul says. What about us? How might we avoid this bewitching folly? Let me suggest three things. First, we've got to recognise the danger. Now, Paul says, who has bewitched you? He's saying, I can't, I can't understand how you got to this point. I can't, it's, it's like someone's cast a spell over you. Baffling. That, that should make us ask about ourselves and examine if there's any of this bewitching folly in us. It might not be that obvious. But we could be acting like there is a spell cast on us. I guess a, a kind of symptom of this folly is where there is inconsistency. Inconsistency between our attitudes and our, and our actions. Uh, and between that and the, the overwhelming significance of Christ crucified. Now, the, the danger that we, we so easily slip into of thinking that we don't, need, we don't need all of Christ all the way. And you know, we're, we're going to be thinking that when we, when we start to think that what we need to do is, is to perform to some kind of standard in order to earn 
affection and acceptance before God. And we need to ask ourselves what it is that is happening within us when, 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 when Christ just becomes small, when he shrinks down and we're not besotted with him. Now, what is happening when, when the thoughts we have of Christ are not immediately full of thankfulness? Now, when you think of Christ, how quickly does thankfulness come? Now, what is happening when we find ourselves crushed with a pressure to conform? We're working so hard at keeping up a good appearance and we, we dare not ever admit that we're not coping. We dare not ever admit that we've got it wrong. Now, what is happening when, when we look at those around us and we, and we think... I'm doing pretty much, pretty much better than them at the moment. No, I'm not like that person. I wouldn't do what they did. I'm, I'm better than them. Or, or what about when we start to think the opposite and we think everyone's so much better than us. I'm the worst of the worst and we hide away in plain sight and we're unwilling to open up ourselves because we fear disapproval. And what is happening when we, when, when we just think that God isn't interested in us? What's happening when we, when we think that God's, God's only attitude towards us is disappointment? Now, what is happening is that we have lost grip on the overwhelming significance of Christ crucified. And we're acting like it doesn't depend on him, but it, but it depends on us that what we do in our performance will determine where we stand. And we have succumbed to a bewitching folly. And I reckon it's very, very common. We need to beware of the danger. Secondly, we need to be clear, crystal clear. No one is justified by works of the law, so don't bother. Now imagine that you wanted to fly. You can't, by the way, but imagine you wanted to. And um, now somebody offers to take you flying on their hang glider. So you, know, you get strapped in and you do the running and the jumping and, and there you are, you're soaring through the air and it's exhilarating and you feel like a bird and it's all you've ever wanted and you stretch out your arms and, and as you're flying and enjoying it, you think, I've got this. I've, I've got this, I can do this. And so you reach down to undo the harness and you start flapping your arms because you don't need to be hindered by anything. You think, I can manage. That harness is the difference between being justified by faith and justified by works. Verse 11 gives us a clear, a clear conclusion. No one who relies on the law is justified before God. Do we know that? Got to be crystal clear on this. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you. There is nothing that you can do to make God accept you. There is nothing that you can do to survive death into eternal life. There is nothing that you can do to open the door of heaven. A guy called Justin Kensrew sings, I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough to make me whole. Are we clear? Nothing. We can do nothing. But Christ has done everything. We cannot express how much we need Christ. We can't, we can't express how much we need him. We cannot express how much we have in him. By faith we reach out and we take hold of him who is everything. And Martin Luther said, we are not to waste time thinking how unworthy we are of the blessings of God. We are to know that it pleased God freely to give us his unspeakable gifts. If he offers his gifts free of charge, why not take them? Now imagine somebody who's in crippling debt. Now this person, they've lost everything. 
And, and it's this person that, that, that they're sitting there and they're, they're under a great cloud of depression. They've lost everything. And this guy comes up to them. And, and this guy says, he says, look, it would just, it would make me so happy. I, I would be so delighted if I, could, if I could pay your debt and restore everything that was lost. That would be all my dreams come true to do that. And I've, of course, I've got more money than I, than I know what to do with. I can easily do it. I, I won't even notice the money is gone. I want to I do this for you. And the, and the one in debt says, oh, but I'm just so needy. And the, and the giver says, I know, that's, that's what I'm saying. I, 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 I'll pay it all. And the, and the one in debt says, oh, but no, you just don't understand. I've lost everything and I've made such a mess. And, and, and I've, I've done these terrible things and I've made these bad choices and I'm such a failure. And the giver says, I, I know, that, that's why I'm offering to pay. And, uh, and the debtor says, oh, but I just I can't. I know, says the giver. That's why I'm a giver. I want to give. I want to give and give. Don't waste your time telling me how much you've lost. Take what I'm giving you. Let's not try to take away from what God wants to give to us. Let's not mope about in our sin as if Christ wasn't a saviour. Let's not hold back from God as if he, as if um, he's expecting us to kind of sort ourselves out before we come to him. Got to be clear on this, so clear. There is no one. There is nobody sitting here today. Nobody who will be accepted by God on the basis of what we do. But anyone, anybody here today, anybody can be justified, can be accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done. Do you believe that? Now, the more clear we are on this, the more we will enjoy God. Now, our sin cannot, it just cannot separate us from God. And our hope And our hope for today and for tomorrow and for all of life and all beyond. Our hope is not that we have done what it takes. Our hope is never that we've done enough. Our hope is only that Christ has done everything. Taken the curse for our sin. Paid the price in full. And we can't take it back. We can't kind of go and get Christ off the cross in some way. Put him back on the cross. He's done it. No, we who trust Christ, we are righteous in God's sight now. And we are righteous in Christ, in God's sight forever and ever. And it's because of Christ. And it's a full stop. Got to be clear. And so let's make much of Christ and him crucified. Now what place do we give to the cross of Christ? And when we consider the cross, what comes from us? And what goes on in our hearts? Isaac Watts, my richest gain, I count but loss. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, life, my all. Something about the cross that undoes him and makes him in the same moment. Seized by a great affection when he considers the cross. Or, or, or um, Wesley wrote a hymn that said, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies, cut off for sins but not his own." He says, all the debt is paid. Justice divine is satisfied. The reign of sin and death is done. And all may live from sin set free. Satan and his pretended throne is swallowed up in victory. Saved from the curse of God I am. My saviour hangs upon a tree. See there the meek and silent lamb. His final breath he breathes for me. In Christ accepted and brought near. And clothed in righteousness divine. I see the path to life made clear. And all your merits Lord are mine. Death, hell and sin are now subdued. 
All grace is now to sinners given. And so I plead the atoning blood. And by your gift, receive your heaven. Seized by a great affection. Do you know what that's like? Now, even if we might not know it with that intensity, do we agree that that is the most appropriate response to Christ and him crucified? Let's just take a moment to think on that, and then we will sing. Our God in heaven, please would you put before our very eyes Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, in your mercy, may we never lose sight. Amen. When the musicians are ready, let's stand and sing. When I survey.